Welcome to Econ Talk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. I'm your host, Russ Roberts of Stanford University's Hoover Institution. Our website is econtalk.org, where you can subscribe, comment on this podcast, and find links and other information related to today's conversation. You'll also find our archives, where you can listen to every episode we've ever done, going back to 2006. Our email address is mail at econtalk.org. We'd love to hear from you. Today's April 20th, 2018, and my guest is Peter Betke. Pete is a university professor of economics and philosophy at George Mason University, the BB&T professor for the study of capitalism and vice president for research, and director of the F.A. Hayek Program for Advanced Study in Philosophy, Politics, and Economics at the Mercatus Center at George Mason. He has written widely on economic philosophy, market processes, comparative economic systems, Austrian economics, and the history of economic thought. This is his eighth appearance on Econ Talk. Most recently, he was here to talk about uh, Hurricane Katrina in October of 2015. Pete, welcome back to Econ Talk. Uh, thank you so much for having me, Russ. Our topic for today is your recent presidential address to the Southern Economic Association. Uh, it's called Economics and Public Administration. It's a very old-fashioned title. Uh, public administration is is something I think a lot of people uh, don't know anything about. What do you mean by public administration? It's really the sort of uh, meat and potatoes of of uh, governance. Um, you know who uh, who collects your garbage, uh, who uh, administers your schools. Uh, uh, how do you get the roads? Um, you know how do you get police? Um, and someone has to provide for that in the institutional infrastructure of society in order for the rest of us to live peacefully and 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 uh, with one another and engage in our neighborly behavior and someone it's sort of the rule definer and enforcer uh, let's call it and you, really in many ways what your paper is about your your essay your your address is the fundamental question of public policy and it's ironically I, I think not ironically but strangely I don't think we've talked much on Econ talk about this in a direct way. And when I say we, I don't mean you and me. I mean just myself with the 625 plus episodes that we've done. I don't think I've ever had a talk with a guest that explicitly asked the question, what is the proper role for government? But in many ways, yeah. that's what your, I would say that's what your paper addresses. And it does it when, by calling it public administration, you're really talking about not just, oh, government should do X. It, it, you're, you're recognizing the reality that when you say government should, it's a, it's a complex statement. It involves jurisdiction. It involves state fed versus federal versus local. It involves uh, what kind of bureaucracy and what incentives might they face to implement whatever you think is the proper role for government. Right. I mean, I think – that the way to think about what I'm at least trying to get the conversation uh, back to, I do think it's a conversation that Adam Smith had, and I think it's a conversation that Hayek had in modern times and James Buchanan. Um, it's about the scale and scope of government, and then once you settle that question about the scale and scope, um, then the question is who, this is your jurisdictions, and how are they going to do these things? And, you know, when you talk to Mike Munger on your show about his book, Choosing in Groups, um, he has a great uh, sort of discussion of this issue of the who and, and how. Um, and it's a principle that 
I also hold to, uh, which is that uh, the extent of the externality is going to determine the decision unit that takes care of it. So you don't need the federal government to collect your garbage, but it would be awful hard to have you know, your locality be in charge of national defense. And so how do you figure all of that out and how do you uh, calculate and get the reliable information to do that? Well, you start with a quote from Smith. Uh, it's a very famous quote. It says, little else is requisite to carry a state to the highest degree of opulence from the lowest barbarism, but peace, easy taxes, and a tolerable administration of justice, all the rest being brought about by the natural course of things. And that that quote, which says that public policy should be peaceful, uh, taxes should be low, and there's that key phrase, tolerable administration of justice, which is a little bit vague, uh, and you try to flesh that out a little bit in this paper. Why don't you talk about that, and then maybe we can talk about whether that's all there is to figure out, because obviously that's not quite all there is. Right, but I think if it, depending on how you you view it, you can fit an awful lot. <laughs> like in a lot of things with Adam Smith, you can fit a lot of yeah. things in those little phrases, but the to- I take the tolerable administration of justice fundamentally to be about the enforcement uh, the definition and enforcement of property rights and the appropriate uh, sort of way that we treat property rights. Because once, you know, to, one of the first things that you learn from when you study economics, any approach to economics is that exchange is mutually beneficial. This is one of the first things that we teach, right? Yep. And then as soon as we get done teaching that, we get a little further on and then we learn, oh, and by the way, you have to have somebody who defines and enforces the property rights, which allow us to exchange with one another. And we normally, you know, introduce even, you know, Adam Smith's night watchman state, you're going to have the protective state, the productive state. uh, And what you worry about is the predatory state, but you still need to have this protective state and this productive state. Um, And when you do that, you have to finance that. And so we're going to skim a little bit off of these voluntary exchanges that everyone's engaging in in order to make sure that we pay for the The infrastructure infrastructure that allows them to realize these exchanges. And so it's this question where what if we get that balance wrong? What happens to us? And I think that's where Smith is talking. That's what that's the wiggle room of tolerable. Right. There has to be some realm in here, you know, where you sort of calculate correctly and avoid having the state now become the thing that destroys the ability to create wealth rather than the thing that enables us to create wealth. Yeah, for me, it's, it's I would call it not just the enforcement or establishment of property rights, but also what we would call very, very broadly the rule of law. That is right. that people are treated equally under the law, you don't have special privileges for some and not others, and that the law is is understood, that you know what the rules of the game are, that they're not uh, subject to discretion. And I think that's that's what, for me, is the tolerable administration of justice because – and then intolerable means you know it's heavy-handed, it's um, capricious, it might favor the, the crony – uh, buddies of the the cronies of the leader, those are the things that interfere with the um, highest degree of opulence uh, arising instead of the lowest barbarism. 
and of course, those are not straightforward laying, laying those out. But before we go into that in more detail, you mentioned the productive state, the protective state, and the predatory state. Can you describe each of those briefly? Uh, yes, and and if I could say something about what you just said, because sure. I think, um, but the uh, the way I'm defining it in there, it derives from the work of Jim Buchanan, and the protective state is the uh, courts and police and and defense, and the uh, productive state is the public goods like the roads, schools, according to Buchanan, sewage, uh, yeah, these kind of things, you know, clean water. Right. Yep. <laughs> you know, kind of issues. And then you have the predatory state, which is the redistributive aspects or rent seeking state where what you're trying to do is uh, curry favor for some uh, by exploiting others. And the state really is a great vehicle by which people can do that. Um, and so you always have to constrain it, but you have to constrain it in a way that also doesn't simultaneously corrupt or destroy the ability to be protective and productive, right? And so that's the fundamental constitutional. Uh, so this is Challenge. the econ economics interpretation of Federalist you know, 51, where Madison says that you have to first empower the government and then constrain the government, right? Um, that's the, the sort of translating that into economics. And what I wanted to say about your other point, which I think is, is spot on, um, is also to recognize, though, how rare in human history it is that we've been able to get a rule of law. Uh, most of human history, we haven't had those kind of institutional capacities. Um, and in fact, instead, we had government for the favored few uh, and exploited others. And I really, this really hit home for me when I was a, um, way back when I was a graduate student and I was working on Soviet stuff. But I, I started reading more general uh, history under the uh, influence of my, uh, my main advisor, and I read Weber's General Economic History. And because, you know, most of us, when we think about Max Weber, we think about the Protestant work ethic and capitalism. It's all, it's all most but of you, us know. Yeah, but if you read uh, General Economic History, it's all about this issue of the arbitrary – the reason why China didn't grow was because – its laws were arbitrary as opposed to general. They weren't predictable. They were, you know, at the whim of the rulers. And this, and then he drives that home across, you know, various different areas in economic history, including the law, but also the fiscal system. And then that, in some sense, is also in Birdzell and Rosenberg, which I think is a just a fascinating book on uh, the book called How the West Grew Rich, which was published in 1986. I think, 86 or 87, and uh, Nathan Rosenberg, the economic historian. Um, and it, in that book, what they do is they go through all the different competing hypotheses about why the West grew rich, and then they, you know, knock them down, you know, like, you know, colonialism, blah, 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 and all that stuff, and then knock it down. But then they focus on this issue of the rules being general and predictable, and equally applicable across all as like the key institutional feature that leads to the to the, the the sort of takeoff period. And so I think that finding that right institutional solution. So if you have institutional problems, you demand institutional solutions. And so what we have to do is look at those. And one of them is, in fact, how rare it is for us to have good governments or what Adam Smith called the tolerable administration of justice. 
I'm going to go back to Buchanan for a minute, the constitutional issue. is something we haven't, I think, talked enough about on the program. I'm going to give you my take on it, which is a depressing one, and see if you agree with it and tell me what Buchanan would have said about it, because I think you could probably tell me. Um, I like to imagine that the United States experiment that began in 1776 or 1789, the late 18th century, was a recognition that government needed to be constrained. And they created, the founders created an institutional framework for constraining government. And somewhere around the late 18th century, late 19th century, late 1800s and early 20th century, the constraints that the founders put on governmental power were steadily and gradually eased, and the scope of government grew. Uh, you can debate why, but it became tolerable to the people to accept those changes. And so uh, we saw a steady growth in government over that time period, and I would say a steady reduction in the ability of the Constitution to constrain government outside of two areas, uh, speech, the First Amendment, and uh, guns, Second Amendment, and those are both under attack. Um, and I just wonder if that romantic story, <laughs> and, and, and I've I've conceded it, you know, at various episodes and conversations with legal scholars that, you know, it it, it may be a, a pure romance, and that maybe what really constrained government in the early days of the republic was that in America was that people didn't think it worked very well. And had experienced the tyranny or what they saw as tyranny from Great Britain, from England. And so they didn't have a taste for it. And after – over time, that that taste changed. That preference changed. And I think most people now don't agree with you and me. They they think the government can do good in an active, proactive way and, and that the productive state should get a lot more resources. Um, and I, I don't – I'm not sure constitutions have much to do with – uh, what constrains the state. And we know that the Soviet Union had a great constitution and mm -hmm. it didn't enforce it. We know many places that don't have a constitution that are that are tolerably uh, just and have rule of law and, and or appear to. So what are your thoughts on that? What Buchanan say about that? Why, why would it, what did he mean by constitutional constraints and, and that enterprise of creating a constitution? Because I'm starting to think, you know, maybe I, I misunder, I underestimated the, the role of culture and human yeah. preferences and that causation really runs in the opposite direction of what I thought. I mean, this is a big debate in constitutional economics. Um, the best way to sort of summarize that in a technical way, I apologize, is that, is that Buchanan viewed constitutions as contracts and Russell Hardin, um, he uh, argued that constitutions were focal points whereas they reflected the uh, evolving culture of the current people that are involved. Yeah. Buchanan wanted to view them like a contract that could prevent your natural proclivities from exploiting situations by binding or tying your hands. Yeah. So to Buchanan, the Constitution is best exemplified by Ulysses and the sirens yep. and, you know, Ulysses tying his hands to the mask. Whereas I think in a hardened kind of view, it's more like what the town assembly all comes to agree as the consensus. But I, I, I want to uh, make a point to you that um, one of my favorite 
uh, economic historians was is, is Bob Higgs. And Bob wrote this great book called Crisis and Leviathan. And uh, when I first started my teaching career, I used to teach, you know, from Bob and, uh, you know, I talked to him about it. And I remember one of the first conversations I had with him, I said, oh, your book is fantastic. It explains why the growth of government and everything. He goes, yeah, he goes, uh, you know, Bob's kind of a curmudgeon. And he says, you know, Jonathan Hughes, you know, he was my advisor, the author of The Governmental Habit. And, uh, and he said, yeah, Jonathan Hughes says, Bob, you think that today the government is all, you know, in people's business? You should have seen what they did in those damn colonial times and the <laughs> restrictions that they had all over the place on people and their local economies. He goes, we got nothing on them like that. And, you know, it was sort of shocking to me because I keep on thinking, oh, there must have been this time when government didn't try to confiscate the wealth of people. They just sort of were nice referees and, yeah. you know, I, I like to use sporting analogies all the time in my own head and then try to communicate to students. Not always the best teaching technique, but nevertheless, I'm always thinking, you know, you know, it used to be a time where the refer where the umpire literally called just the balls and strikes in the right zone, right? Rather yeah. than any of the kind of – and obviously that's not true. Um, <laughs> even so, for umpires, yeah. Even for umpires. And yeah. so then the question is, is how is it that – you get the the system to work sometimes. And Buchanan, ironically, as one of the founders of public choice, which was the goal was to poke or pull the veil of romance away from politics, right? He wrote a famous paper called Politics Without Romance to summarize his position. At the end of his life, he kept on writing about the need for romance, the need for a kind of what he even wrote in one series of letters that I recently um, uh, went through, uh, and Pete Leeson's actually writing a whole paper on this, uh, which is on, Buchanan called for what he called, uh, 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 you know, the the sustaining of the mythology of the constitutional. Uh, you know, project for the yep. public interest, because he said that if all we ever see is in our rules of governance is a grab for one another's resources, then what's your response going to be? Right, Your response is going to be, I'm going to try to grab resources before the other guy does. And so what happens is you collapse into a rent-seeking race. And so we have to somehow believe that we could have a set of rules which could successfully bind people's efforts to try to grab the resources of others. Um, and he says he, he talks about the need for writers, you know, people, intellectuals like you and I or whatever, to perpetuate this mythology in order to keep the American experience going forward. Otherwise, it's going to collapse. And it's a quite challenging idea for any of us when we think about it, because we think of, you know, public choice is part of the DNA of an economist rather than a footnote. And therefore, we should always be looking at, you know, uh, who benefits at whose expense, right, yeah. in every kind of discussion that anyone makes. But we rely on rule makers who are trying to benefit us all, right? And so – but – are they just designing to decide the rules just for themselves or are they trying to design the rules that will benefit all of society? And how do you square that both analytically and then actually in historical practice? It's a tough thing. Yeah, I remember his uh, – I think it was January 1st, 2000, Wall Street Journal essay called The Soul of Liberalism 
Where Buchanan yeah. argued for uh, trying to retake the moral high ground, I, or the, I would even call it the spiritual high ground. And I think the uh, the free market movement, I'll call it the classical liberal movement, has lost. He was correct, and we haven't fixed it in the 17 year, 18 years since he wrote that piece. Uh, we don't have a lot of romance. Um, but can I let yeah. me make, let me make one more analytical point? Yeah, sure. And then and then an intellectual historical evolution point. I agree with you. I think you know what you just said is is right. Is that uh, what he's trying to do is reclaim the soul of the liberal project? And I think and his argument is is that we economists. Uh, have been a little blind by focusing on the ruthless efficiency of the market yep. rather than, let's say, on the do commerce thesis about the market, which is something you could get very romantic about. Do commerce, right? meaning sweet commerce. Yes, meaning turning strangers into friends, that kind of stuff. Um, but I Empathy. do think, yeah, I do think that Hayek captures some of this in the Law, Legislation, and Liberty Project. In which he begins the uh, the whole project by pointing out that the constitutional project of the founding fathers was noble and inspiring, but in the end it must have been judged as a failure because it succumbed to the very factions yeah. that it sought to break. And so then the question is, what do we do in response to that? And part of the way to see Hayek's answer in Constitution and Liberty and in Law, Legislation and Liberty is for him to sort of try to fix in theory what, you know, Madison and Hamilton and Jay and all them like kind of missed in in their effort earlier. Um, and so that's why he has like these weird kind of things in the third volume of Laws, Legislation and Liberty where he's talking about like a random lot and then a f one, you know, 15-year term. And because he's trying to figure out a way that you could both empower the state but then constrain the state. But for me, what I think is not so much his particular answers, but the evolution of his ideas. And I tend to think of this also with Friedman as well as with Buchanan, that one of the ways for us today isn't to look for them for answers, but to look for them for the questions that now we have to kind of pursue answers for. Because if you think about Hayek, let's use a very mundane example, which is money, uh, right? So how do I have monetary policy that actually works? You've had lots of conversations on your program about uh, what the monetary authority should do, right, in the face of this or that or the other thing. And so Hayek at one time in his career um, argued for uh, basically uh, nominal income targeting. Uh, he had other points of his career where he argued for other aspects of monetary policy. And then because of the frustration in each and every one of those efforts, he ended his career by arguing for denationalization of money. That wasn't <laughs> Something he Meaning started private with. private money. Yeah, that wasn't something he started with, right? That was something he ended with because of his frustration. And I think actually, if you look at Milton Friedman, uh, you know, he, you also see a similar evolution. I mean, a lot of times we just you know look back on Milton Friedman and we say, oh, you know, Milton Friedman believed in the K percent rule or something like that, right? But if you actually look at a his steady pick a fixed growth of yeah, but if you look at his his argument, he actually changes drastically throughout his career, his position. And I'm always reminded of this passage that he has in Capitalism and Freedom, where he says that if we give, this is in reference to the central bank, he says, any policy 
where a sincere error, so not a malicious error, a sincere error by a few can threaten the entire system is a policy we can't afford. Yeah. And and I don't think, you know, that's an idea that James Tobin or Bob Solo ever crossed their minds. Right? Because that that's so that's they they're they're not getting the downside risk aspect which Friedman is bringing up. They have a different view of the downside risk which is what if we don't get the policy why don't we do, do don't do the policy in a proactive way then the system is going to have an economic collapse rather than that the political system will generate uh, economic consequences that are dire and so i you know in the paper that we started talking about i i introduced this thing about the tacit presuppositions in political economy which is the way that people view optimism and pessimism about private ordering or about public ordering. And I would argue that if you think in those terms, you'll find out that, uh, you know, someone like Keynes or Samuelson, they were very pessimistic about the market ordering itself through entrepreneurship, but very optimistic about the experts in government doing the right thing. Whereas someone like uh, Hayek or Buchanan is much more confident about the entrepreneurial responses. Today's inefficiencies generate tomorrow's profit opportunity, but they're more pessimistic about the government being able to guide that process and whatnot. And I think that if we peer underneath of what the different arguments are, we see this, what Schumpeter called pre-analytic cognitive act, their vision about whether or not they're optimistic or pessimistic. And I think that's one way to understand these debates within the history of economics. Yeah, I think that's true. Um, and I think about it in my own case. I think, you know, force you to think about it and where you are in that spectrum. And I do tend to overly, uh, <clears throat> I'm overly optimistic perhaps about the ability of bottom-up solutions to yeah. Fix things, and I'm not so optimistic about top down. But I certainly concede that there are things that don't, the bottom up can't fix, and the top down do better. And, I, and in many ways, I think that is the central question. You know, government should do the things that we don't do very well ourselves, and then we can debate about what those things are, right? Um, and how to get but there I, from I, here. I, you know, laughing as a flippant kind of example, I always, uh, you know, uh, use this to the students because. Uh, you know, I played sports all through college, and then I worked actually in the in the sports uh, field when I got out of college, originally before I went to graduate school. But then, like when I was in graduate school, I literally stopped training, uh, which was uh, you know like I used to run every day two miles every day and lift weights and do all the kind of things like that. But I I just stopped doing it because I was now studying books, and then I put on weight. And I always said to the students, I said, yeah, I said I was a little too optimistic about Julian Simon because <laughs> I always thought Julian Simon's argument is that the greatest uh, resource is the human imagination. And I always thought, oh, yeah, you know, they'll come up with a pill someday and I'll just take the pill and then, you know, I'll, I'll get back to how I used to look, you know, because um, of technological innovations. Everyone's having this problem of putting on extra pounds. So Julian Simon forces will fix it. And, you know, some of these things you can't fix. And so you start thinking, wow, maybe there really is like problems of short sightedness, you know, in decision making and things like that. I don't think the government is a better decision maker for you on that. 
But I do think that there are real problems in the world, and it's a mistake for us to deny them. There is poverty, ignorance, and squalor. There is exacerbation of policy, ignorance, and squalor through, I think, bad policy. But there also is poverty, ignorance, and squalor that needs to be eradicated. And how that's going to happen is going to be a very jagged and – you know, jagged process. It's not going to happen like overnight that it gets fixed. I'm going to, I'm going to come back and add a footnote to my earlier point and reacting to what you just said a little before. And then I want to come to your jagged uh, squalor poverty problem. Um, Your statement, quoting Friedman about, you know, if the actions of one person could destroy the system, that's a bad system. And it reminded me of a theme that, that I, that I've heard from Arnold Kling a few times and I realize now is is really embedded in in Talib's you know, some Talib's work, and the way Kling puts it is, you think about the next financial crisis, you don't want to try to create a system that won't have a financial crisis, yeah. uh, and that in fact what you want is a system that when you have one, it isn't so bad. And it's interesting that humanly, I think we think about the former. And my analogy, my metaphor for this is the forest fire. So you have. You know, fire is bad, so you put out every fire. And when you do that, you do allow the accumulation of small pieces of, of tinder and other stuff that normally would get destroyed by these smaller fires to build up to a point where a fire comes along that is devastating. Uh, the Yellowstone fires being an example of that where probably caused – the size of that devastation was probably caused by the mistaken idea that we should obliterate every fire uh, and never let it spread. And, and I think that's the – we have a similar mistaken view of financial crises. Financial crises, every once in a while, they're not so bad or not – it's not a bad thing. What you do want to avoid are things like the Great Depression and the financial crisis of 2008, which have devastating effects on long-run growth, at least it appears so far, and destroy maybe faith in the, in the political system because of the rewarding of, of cronies on Wall Street and the bailouts and the one-sided bets they were able to place. Uh, but the way I think about it with Talib is, you know, Talib's point is is that you don't you shouldn't just look at the expected value. You've got to look at the worst case black swan, and yeah. it's so hard to anticipate that. So I think what happens is decent people trying to figure out how to cope with the potential for crisis say, well, <clears throat> we know, yeah, we shouldn't we should worry about how bad it'll be, but it won't be any worse than this. Not realizing, yes, it can be, and yeah. it could be a lot worse than this. And I think the, the the whole idea of of Talib's anti-fragile and and the point that I think Kling is making about having the system be resilient even though imperfect. I think that's I think that's the right way to think about it. I think it's a, those are very deep ideas. I just wanted to yeah. to mention those. No, um, I think um, can I yeah because uh, I because I think Arnold Kling's work on the the crisis and what was necessary to come back really does cycle back to my public administration point because the key issue that he has is that this is a recalculation moment, right? What has to happen is resources, the recession or the downturn is the moment of great recalculation. You're re, you know, reallocating resources, reallocating labor. You're, you, know, you have to go through that. And so the real question is, is you have to get back to the coordination of economic activities through time and what the crisis was, was a malcoordination issue. And so how do you get this ease of adjustment? And what does government have as a positive role to play in that process? And the problem is, is that 
a lot of the policy tools that we rely on, what they do is they provide short-term relief at the expense of long-term economic growth. And so they they kill the goose that lays the golden egg in the desire to fix a short-run problem at the moment that actually doesn't allow for an appropriate recalculation. And so Kling and, and you're right, Kling and Taleb are very, very important in all of this because how do we think about building systems that through time become more resilient, right? That's the whole point about the anti-fragile. It's not just robustness. It's that you become stronger Correct. because of the tearing down today. But yet, do we become more fragile in the future? And to me, like I think of the three pressing problems that I think of as facing the American economy, and I don't know that they still have been addressed in a in an adult manner, which is, uh, you know, the the uh, basically the fiscal gap. Like, what are we doing on our public finances? What are our obligations in the future, and what is our ability to pay for it? And I'm very influenced in this regard by Lawrence Kontlikoff. So I think this fiscal gap is quite uh, extreme. And that that's going to call for some serious measures. But Kontlikoff's not the only one. You know, Vito Tanzi and his uh, uh, book on government versus the market. He was a lead economist at the IMF. John I mean, Taylor's worried about it. Yeah, there are a lot of it's, it's, people it's worried not, about it. Yeah, no, actually, right. Boskin and Taylor just had that whole piece on this. And so I think this issue of the fiscal gap is huge. The end game strategy of the Fed. Right. What is what's the Fed going to do with all the extraordinary measures that it's adopted? Since the financial crisis, how is that going to get back to ordinary times? And then the third one is is the kind of structural uh, inequalities that emerge because of gumming up the labor market. And yeah. so in some sense, this is what you were talking about with uh, Glazer on joblessness or an earlier time with Casey Mulligan yeah. on the redistribution recession. And so if you put all three of those together and recognize that they are consequences of political decisions that have been made, they're decisions that were made, you might want to argue, in the best of, in, uh, best of intentions, but the long-run consequences of them are devastating or potent- – sorry, that's, that's hyperbole uh, – uh, potentially devastating. Yeah, well, I think, right. yeah, yeah, you know, the my favorite example of this is uh, I think it's Time Magazine in the uh, 90s had a cover of um, it was Greenspan. Um, who else was on the cover? Um, it'll come to me in a minute. It doesn't matter. But the, t- the title was The Three Who Saved the World because they'd bailed out. Uh, Mexico and avoided this crisis, but right. that of course yeah, yeah. is Larry Summers was one of them. Greenspan yeah. Summers and I forget who uh, uh, Rubin, I think uh, Robert Rubin, who was Secretary of the Treasury. So I think you know the claim was they oh, phew, and real you know it's like yeah they steered us over a different abyss uh, by yeah. telling banks that when they made bad bets they'd get their money back. It would just and 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 at the time it was considered a great success because. We had guaranteed these new loans that allowed Mexico to pay off all the past loans that they had made, right. that they had taken, that that were not going to get paid off, and and the guarantees never got invoked. So, quote, it didn't cost a penny, but in fact, of course, it did. It cost the expected bad behavior in the future. Now, I wanna, yeah, uh, one last thing on that, just you know, to to put a fine point on that. Also, look at Stiglitz's discussion in Globalization as Discontents about capital controls. So he complains in that book 
that uh, during the Asian uh, crisis, uh, what was that, 97, right? That uh, during that uh, time, people didn't listen to him, even though he was in a position of power. And the country should have put strict capital controls so that people couldn't get capital flight. And it is true that if you put those controls on, you wouldn't have seen the capital flight, right? Yep. But what, would ha- what you should ask is what's going to happen to foreign direct investment 20 years from now because you put those capital right. controls on? And he never asked that question. So it's short-run relief at the expense of long-term economic health. And that's I think, creates this real problem because, again, in politics, much of the desire when we give power to the state – is to concentrate benefits on the well-organized and well-informed in the short run and disperse the costs on the unorganized and ill-informed in the long run. And that creates a whole conflict between doing good policy and doing good politics because good politics is to give those short-run reliefs because you don't have to pay at the moment in the ballot box for the, the long run. That's the skin costs. in the game. That's the skin yes. in the game, Tyler right. Yeah, for sure. Yeah. Um, but I'm going to shift gears a little bit. I'm going to read a quote yep. from the book that I loved, and I'm going to so I'm going to tell you how much I love it, and then I'm going to tell you what I don't like about it. Okay, yep. but, but it's a it's a beautiful um, summary of I think um, your philosophy, and to some extent, um, I, I think my philosophy about about economics generally. You say the following: We are imperfect beings living in an imperfect world, bumping into each other and bargaining with one another in the hope of finding rules that will enable us to live better together. We strive to turn situations of potential conflict into situations of cooperation so we can realize mutual benefits. Smith's tolerable administration of justice emerges when the rules of the game are those that enable individuals to pursue productive specialization and realize the gains from peaceful social cooperation. I said about economics, really about, I call it political economy. That's exactly... It, the world's a complex place. It's really hard to figure out what the best rules are, but we know what the goal is. The goal is to figure out the rules and let people do their own thing as best they can. And that's what you know Hayek's extended order of cooperation is about. It what's it's what Smith's Invisible Hand is about, and what makes this essay I think so appealing, and I think what makes your worldview and I hope mine appealing, uh, at least to me. Is a realization appreciation. This is not anarchy. It's not government is zero. You need you need government, or at least government works well, doing a lot of things that enable the invisible hand to work, that enable specialization and cooperation and mutual exchange to work. My question for you is: There seems to be a, a good chunk of the American people who aren't benefiting from the gains from peaceful social cooperation who aren't pursuing productive specialization, either because they can't or they don't know how to, uh, the the so-called underclass. Uh, it, it just, there seems to be a group of people who aren't part of this great flourishing that is that is around us. Now, I don't think it's as big, that problem is as big as most people think it is. I know you know that, Pete, and I think you're on my side there. I don't think it's like everybody but the top 20% or everybody but the top 1% or the median vote person or the middle income person. I think a lot of people who have shared in the prosperity. But if you're a poor kid growing up in an inner, in the inner city or in the a rural area of Ohio, West Virginia, where economic life is bleak, 
Uh, what do we have to offer those folks, those of us with our worldview? What do we? What's our selling point? How do we market freedom and economic uh, liberty to people who don't see it helping it much? I mean, that's a huge question, and um, that's my squalor jagged <laughs> yeah, point. <laughs> I know, and uh, it's it's one of the reasons why. I might agree with all the particulars of my colleague, brilliant colleague, Brian Kaplan's book on education, but disagree uh, with a certain message of it. Not that I think this, the federal government should be financing education and all that other stuff, but I view education, however it comes to you, as potentially transformative of people's lives. And it doesn't just begin with initial conditions. So it's not just... Uh, you know, whether or not you're smart to begin with, then you'll be able to like benefit from education. It's that education can give people different part of education in a broad sense is to give people different visions about what they can achieve yeah. in their lives. And I think education can be transformative. And so I think of this issue is that, um, you know, we have a real difficult time. I would, I spend too much time probably diagnosing why it is that we got in this situation as opposed to how we can get out of it. Mm -hmm. But I think understanding how we got into it, which I would argue, and this is, of course, contestable, is that we have turned more and more to the state um, and the idea that uh, impediments are from the outside rather than right in front of you in the mirror and that uh, what we need to do is get the state out of the way and allow people to, uh, uh, through civil society, um, for example, you know, I view that a lot of the fixing of the problems of scholar, uh, um, uh, poverty, ignorance, and squalor will fall on uh, basically mutual aid societies churches, other kinds of nonprofits that work with people, help with job relocation and issues like that. I was um, very influenced by a, nam, a man named Richard Cornell, who has on the Liberty Fund site a portrait so your uh, listeners can go watch mm -hmm. what Dick was up to. Um, and I was part of a project with him for many years because uh, in, to put the technical economics of this, not technical, but funny economics is that Keynes supposedly one time said, look, you can't make a fat man skinny by tightening his belt. You have to make uh, you have to make a guy skinny and then his belt is less. He was talking about the budget mm -hmm. and all of these things. And so if we're worried about taming Leviathan, one of the things that we need to do is we need to cut all the fat out of government and instead turn some of these uh, programs to address these very, very pressing social issues over to non-governmental organizations like uh, mutual aid societies and nonprofits, including churches and whatnot in our society. And I think one of the things that they, when you're closer to those kind of issues, they very much concern themselves with trying to be uplifting of the people that are in dire circumstances and giving possibilities for the future as opposed to leveling. So it's not trying to take resources from some and level you with someone else. It's to give you the capacity so that you can, in fact, be your own self-governor 
over your own life, your own architect of your own life. And education is at a key of doing that, obviously, primary education. But then and, and again, it doesn't necessarily have to be uh, the state and, and all the other things. But I think we need to have this kind of view about education that it can make even the most um, uh, least advantaged among us give them the basic capacities to be able to benefit from the marketplace um, and live in caring communities. Um, and uh, yeah, and so that is my mix of like Adam Smith and Tocqueville. <laughs> yeah, I love that. I mean, that's, that's yeah. my vision too. And I don't, you know, I get mocked for it a lot because people tell me it's impractical and there's free rider problems with raising the money for those mutual aid societies or for or for philanthropies yeah. that would help students. And, and yet, even in today's but, world where we have free education, there are wealthy people giving away millions of dollars to try to get people out of it through private yeah. fellowships and scholarships. But if you go back to the theme of, of, of public administration, the key question, I think, is, is if, if you take that paragraph that you read from there, is that what does that then mean for the guts of the structure of government? That's in there. And so, you know, how are we going to best deliver that? So are we going to have uh, imagine we live in a world again, like I said, imperfect. So we have erring entrepreneurs, but we also have bumbling bureaucrats. So, yeah. right. So, we, you know, where are we going? It's not like I'm saying that entrepreneurs are always perfect. All right. But I'm also not willing to say that bureaucrats always do the right thing all the time. And so the question is, is that if I'm in a world of erring, erring entrepreneurs and bumbling bureaucrats, how am I going to organize the governance system such that I can best address or give the best chance of addressing these social tensions? And to me, this leads to a kind of very, uh, you know, sort of set of conditions. I don't lay it out in there and in, in here, but in other places that follow the kind of wine gassed, uh kind of idea about decentralized or polycentric governance structures, right? Where, you know, you don't want to have economic regulation at the highest levels because you want to have competition going on to discipline the efforts of the government to be able to regulate the economy as a whole. And you want to have, you know, at the same time, you want to have something at the central level, which provides, for example, a common market, right? And so, you know, you don't have internal protectionism kind of things going on. And these kind of questions all become very important about how you unleash the creative capacities of mankind. So to go back to reading, uh, you know, Hayek's chapter, the second, I think it's the second chapter in the Constitution of Liberty on the creative powers of a free civilization. That's always been the most, going back to uh, Buchanan, that's always been to me the most romantic discussion, ironically, about what a free civilization can deliver for us. Because we can't tell you what it is, right? right? But it's going to, but we know that we're going to maximize the opportunities for things to come about, which today we don't even have, can't even imagine are going to be there, right? And so it's even beyond flying cars, right? We have no idea, like this, this seminar that we're having today or discussion in the future, we might be all, you know, a whole auditorium with holograms of all of us there being able to actually say hello to you know the different readers and experience that and even if you think about this you know this podcast that you have and what you've done so brilliantly with it since 2006 i remember when it started you had milton friedman on 
right? Yep. And Milton Friedman was the best communicator of economic ideas in your in my lifetime, I believe. I agree. And, and, uh, and, you know, but nowadays, right? And so he was a unique talent and it required such a unique talent to have the reach that he did. But nowadays... There's even I have a reach. Yeah, (laughs) I mean, an amazing reach, right? An amazing reach and 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 done such an amazing job of teaching people economics. And I think this was really, really key. Uh, you, You know, people can laugh at me about this, but I think it's really key because after the Great Depression. Uh, within a generation, it became the common knowledge of even those practicing economics, let alone the public, that the market was the reason for the Great Depression. And that narrative was something that people wanted to push after 2008. But yet it hasn't become the the narrative. It's one of the narratives, but it's not it doesn't dominate. Not, it doesn't dominate for every narrative that's out there that does that, there's another person viewing fear the boom and the bust, right? <laughs> and these kind of things. And so you know, millions of views of that. Who could have imagined? Would Milton Friedman have imagined that he could have had, you know, his lectures on free to choose, you know, at the time that he was doing it, or let's say even more relevant, the capitalism and freedom lectures, that they could have been seen by millions of people on a at their computer, he never says. So I think that technology and the free society and the innovation of all of that is just so powerful. And Hayek captures it by saying that we have to have these in- infrastructure which permits that, right? And so it's like Munger's uh, talk with you recently on permissionless innovation. Um, and what are the rules that give us that? Yeah, I'm just going to, in case there are any listeners who haven't seen Fear of the Boom and Bust, my. Uh uh, the first rap video of Keynes and Hayek I did with filmmaker and, and economic thinker, economist John Popola. Uh, we'll put a link up to it. Uh, but thanks for the plug, Pete. I no, appreciate but not that. Only, not only that, but in your in the if you actually go back and look at the content value, not just of the rap, the words in the rap, but then what followed up when you did all of the stuff on the economic stories, you know, where you actually explain in detail what the the debate was. I mean, educationally, that was available – that only used to be available behind, uh, you know, libraries that yeah, required people to have, you know, eight years of school before they could read the triangles. Yeah. Right? Yeah, that's and amazing. Now, sudden, it was amazing. So, yeah. I want to I pick on something you said – pick up on something you said. I might, I might pick on it too, actually. Yep. Okay. Uh, because I think it's a really um, – something I've always been bothered about and, and I'd love to get your reaction. You made at one point – an argument for decentralization, bringing decisions down to the local level where there'd be more competition rather than at the federal level, right? Did I, did I get that right? Yeah, yeah. And, and Taleb makes that point about Switzerland, the Canton system, and that there's much less national policy done. And I'm, I'm a big fan of that. I think it's a great idea. I've always wondered, though, the problem is, seems to me, and, and I have a new take on it, so see what you think of this. Nobody pays much attention to local politics, now, one argument is is because, well, it's not so important. If it were important, then people would pay more attention to it. I think it's pretty important even today that you know state legislatures – I'm not sure I could name too many people that in my state legislature other than a, than a guy who lives around the block from me. Uh, and I happen to just happen to know he's on the state legis- in the state legislature. So it's a little weird, and, and I, I would – I suspect part of the reason that it doesn't get the – attention it 
it might deserve is because they're not celebrities. They're local. And we have this unfortunate love of celebrity, which Smith identified in, in Theory of Moral Sentiments. And so it's pretty old and it's a real problem. And we glorify and and put on a pedestal national politicians. I don't know if we – and I think that's a bad thing. But I'm not sure even we'd get to the attention level and citizenship required to be good local citizens. What do you think about that? Um, I think that the demands that are often put on to have a self-governing democratic system do put an awful lot of uh, demands on us as citizens that we might not want to do. Yeah. <laughs> right. Uh, and, and in fact, we have to always fear when we don't do this. So we have a fear, a Tocquevillian fear of democratic despotism. Uh, and we tend to think of that in terms of an overarching central government that's engaged in too much of, uh, you know, but we can also overlook uh, the problem that we face with local tyrannies. Uh, any of us who belong to any kind of thing that has a homeowners association realizes that there's a lot of meddlesome preferences out there, yeah. uh, right, that get involved in. You know how do we how do we deal with that? Um, and uh, I don't know if you remember uh, in the movie. This is a funny reference, but in the movie The Patriot, when Mel Gibson originally doesn't want to join the revolution, his answer to the people telling him he has to join the revolution, he says, "Why would I trade uh, a, one tyrant?" 5,000 miles away for uh, 200 tyrants, you know, one mile away, <laughs> right? And, yeah. and so, he's on to something there. Yeah, so he's on to something. <laughs> so then, but what that does is I think it just means that we have to build this sort of vigilance of what it means to be part – part of what we have to do is get people, again, to recognize the burdens of being a self-governing citizen that's responsible as a co-producer – of the neighborhood that they live in now. No, that's for sure. And I actually I think that's about a tough, tough thing because we all have lives to live. You know, I don't want to go to a meeting to talk about whether or not someone could have a wrought iron fence or a wooden <laughs> fence, you know, or anything like that. And I, but there are people who will, and they're going to, <laughs> yeah, the people that will. And, and, uh, but yet at the same time, if you look at like, you know, Robert Nelson's book, on uh, private neighborhoods, uh, we have had an explosion of private neighborhoods in the last, gen you know, last generation, uh, which include like the, the provision of local public goods, right? That they're that the neighborhood associations, so it's a private provision of a public good, um, and they maintain it and keep it. And we, so we have moved in this direction, but we still delegate a lot of authority. Uh, to these uh, local people. And then if you throw into that also things that a cosmopolitan sentiment might find, um, you know, uh, problematic, like some localities might have very perverse mores, right, about them and, and not have the openness to others and, and whatnot that we tend to glorify today as part of what it means to live in a open society and, and whatnot. Yeah, and I've, so, I've used the example before in Irvine, California, you, you, you can't leave your garage door open during the day. And I think you can't paint your house certain colors in certain places right. for sure. Yeah. But, you know. um, but whether or not that's better than the other thing. So, I, you know, again, I think revisiting for, you know, just to the readers here, you know, revisiting Adam Smith is always – 
fascinating on these because he dealt with so many of these issues for his own time. I understand we don't live in the same time as him, but if you read him, the general principles of, say, for example, in book three, where he's dealing with violence, right? And how is it that we have to con- about somehow- the wealth of nations. Right. And how we have, yeah, sorry, the wealth of nations, how we have to curb the uh, predatory capacity of states and violence. But yet at the same time, we also have to curb the private violence, right? As, as Smith says, it's only under the, the civil magistrate that we're able to sleep at night, right? That, that we're not being, you know, uh, subject constantly to violence. But then you look at the fifth book of Wealth of Nations, where he then gives his advice to the statesmen, right? He, he gives them, he's trying to bound them by rules. Like he even uses in taxation, he gives us maxims of taxation, not tax policy, right? He says, this is what taxes should look like rather, and they're rules, they're rules about the tax system. Um, and he's worried about the juggling tricks. You know, you run deficits, accumulate debt, then debase the currency. And so we got to get off of that, that track of those juggling tricks. And, and so Smith says in there that governments ancient as well as modern have engaged in these practices. And that's because, as to mention Jonathan Hughes again, his title, which I think is a wonderful title, it's called The Governmental Habit, which is the history of how government has practiced these things. And that doesn't mean we have to like get rid of governance because we need governance to be able to realize the great benefits of exchange and, and, and whatnot and specialization and exchange. But at the same time, government can also be the great curse that truncates our possibilities. And so how do you so as I said before, I think reading Hayek and Friedman and Buchanan, you don't have to necessarily look for their answers, but the questions that they raised are so fascinating and a continuation of the questions from Adam Smith that it just should excite the, gen- the, the minds of the next generation of how is it that you wrestle with this problem of economics and public administration? Yeah, no, <clears throat> it's a great it's a great point about questions and answers and also a great point about maxims versus um, details and specifics, right? It seems to me that the there is an, an, a human temptation, and this comes back to your earlier point about optimism versus pessimism versus private in the private versus the public sector, that, you know, it's like when, when I would propose, when I think about college, late night college debates or debates in <laughs> cocktail parties or bars where you're, you know, you're trying to talk about big picture stuff i think you know you'd, you'd propose something and, and someone would shoot it down because they said well but what about x the x would be like you know well one person might go hungry and one person going hungry is not good but people go hungry they go hungry under every system and it's so hard to remember yeah. that it's so hard to remember that every system is imperfect whether it's a government or you know a, a private entrepreneurial solution or strategy or, or some kind of uh, implementation of some vision. They're all imperfect. And I, I think that's why you have to keep in mind that cling to Leb point about consequences. Of course, it's imperfect. You just don't want it to be disastrous. And, right. and, and the opportunity to throw the bums out is what I think is, and to experiment and tinker and use trial and error is, is such an unromantic, unappealing, but crucial piece of good public policy. And, and it's so hard for politicians to sell it. And yeah, you don't, yeah, you don't have much of a, 
of a uh, a placard when you have as your <laughs> motto, uh, "Don't let the perfect get in the way yeah. of the good." Yeah, my, my and, version of that placard is maybe. It's yeah, like right. Oh, great! And so <laughs> I think yeah, and that's you know, but that in some sense is actually what our problem in the 20th century is: is that you know a large part of our effort was to substitute what we thought was the perfect for the good. And that creates this kind of, you know, like Thomas Sowell point about the anointed and, and other kinds of issues with the progressives. And I think one of the important things for economics is economic science um, is that to some extent, economic, the demand for economists is a derived demand. And if our final product is public administration that you know we are supposed to serve there's a big difference between public administration as perceived as conceived of as bureaucratic management of an economy or as go- or democratic governance um the way i i put it in the paper borrowing from the ostroms is uh, the difference between governing over or governing with and then what kind of economics if we're governing with Economics is supposed to be a tool for social understanding, and that's it. If we're supposed to govern over, then economics has to be a tool of social control. And this determines so much in my pet history here, uh, you know, of the way that economics evolved from Adam Smith to Paul Samuelson, is that economics transformed because Public, the nature of what we conceived of public administration transformed. And so if, if you were at Adam Smithian in the time of Samuelson, you would have been scoffed at. But the reality is, is if you were a Samuelsonian in the time of Adam Smith, you would have been scoffed at as arrogant and a man of conceit and whatnot. Man but by system. the time you came to Samuelson, if you're a Smithian like Hayek, you're scoffed at as you know, you're a relic from a previous age. And um, and so I want to see this relationship between public administration and economic science because it influences the way we practice economic science. And I want to see if we can change our vision of public administration, then how much does that open up the science of economics and the art of political economy to be different than the way that it is currently practiced? And I think well, anyway, I'll leave it at that. But I think that that's kind of fascinating if you think about that in light of the kind of debates and resistance in debates that you've had over statistics and prediction. Yeah. Because if I view statistics as a tool of social understanding, they're just one piece of a lot of forms of evidence that I might rely on. And I would never go to the barricades for just that. I'm just trying to figure stuff out. And I need to kind of know, like in your debate with Glazer, you had a wonderful conversation about figuring out actually, you know, what is the percentage of people that are jobless? What is the change in the joblessness rate? All that stuff. That had nothing to do with control. That had to do with whether or not out what's going on. Out. Yeah, figuring <laughs> out what's figuring figuring out how things are going on, right? Whereas if I'm doing macroeconomic policy and stabilization policy, I need those statistics to be fine instruments of control 
for otherwise I'm going to get the like no one goes there and says, ah, I'm just going to give it my best chance. (laughs) Right. You know, that's it. But and, and so economics got transformed into this tool of social control as opposed to a tool of social understanding. And I think if you look through, you know, various different thinkers that you've discussed and try to think about where they fall in that uh, spectrum, it's a quite fascinating way to think about it, with Hayek being probably the most extreme of economics is just a tool of social understanding, to Milton Friedman, say, for example, who was very active in trying to figure out what would be the right policy conclusions, right? To someone like Keynes, who had great faith that he knew what the, or Keynesians at least, um, had great faith that they knew exactly what the right policy mix was going to be. Well, Stigler and Friedman had that distinction, right? Friedman wanted to change things, and Stigler kind of thought that was bemused. Actually, it's it, yeah. Stigler would be with with Hayek in that yeah. regard. Yeah. You just you just you know this is just a circus to watch. You know, why would you ever think you could actually think, you know change what the what the performers are doing? Uh, but I want I want to let's close with this. Um, I want to yep. come back to something you said about citizenship, and I want to apply it to economists. Uh, you said something really interesting about you know, citizens need to rethink their role or, or that it's expensive. It's a time-consuming role to be a good citizen, and that's hard. Uh, we have lives to live, and I think that's absolutely correct. I'm going to tweak that a little bit. I, I'm, I think part of our problem right now in America is that politics is a form of entertainment and tribalism. <laughs> it's a way to express ourselves, to express our identity, and we're not so concerned with the truth. And I get that, and it's unlike it's unlikely to change, but I think we might make a dent in it a little bit if we made people aware that uh, how they behave on Twitter and Facebook and what they believe uh, affects how they vote. It affects how their neighbors vote, but it also affects how their neighbors treat each other. And that's what I think we're starting to put at risk here in in America is the the level of tribalism and anger and intolerance and self righteousness or or are being produced not by the fact that my evidence is better than yours. It's that my team is better than yours, and therefore it must be the case that I'm right and you're wrong and you're dangerous, which is just – that's not going to work in a democracy for very long. And we, I think people need to realize that that's dangerous in and of itself. So I'm going to make a related argument for economists. So you know, I'm to, you know I agree with you that we sh- we're useful for social description more than we are for social control. We're better at understanding the world rather than manipulating it, and yet we're lonely. <laughs> we're no, mm-hmm. There are not a lot of people who agree with us, and one of the reasons, of course, is that it's more fun to believe the alternative and be able to believe that the levers work, and then you could maybe get to move the levers. And you know, I have episodes with uh, Luis Ngales and Paul Flater on the fact that economists have trouble seeing themselves as – uh, the way we look at everybody else, which is, you know, incentives matter and and rewards uh, influence behavior. And, I, you know, we treat ourselves, our profession generally sees itself as, quote, scientific and just out for the good of mankind. And um, I think it would be good to be, have a little more self-awareness that it's more complicated than that. And yet yeah. are these kind of um, these kind of critiques that, that you offer and that I've offered and others don't. They don't resonate much, but I think I think our best bet is not to convince that our fellow economists that they don't know as much as they know, but maybe to convince them that that hubris is dangerous in yeah. and of itself. Yeah, on the the general 
status of the world today. It's almost, Russ, as if uh, the whole world has moved to the Yankees versus Red Sox or Duke exactly. versus North Carolina. Yeah. And, uh, you know, those things are entertaining. Uh, I read a book, uh, you'll know this book, a few years ago called um, It's Something About the Hate, like, uh, you know, about the North Carolina-Duke rivalry. Uh, and it's a, it's a whole book about, like, how beautiful it is to hate. You know, yeah, between the lovely. two. And uh, because, you know, this has been one of the greatest rivalries in college basketball and, and, and whatnot. And that's not what our politics should be. Um, but yet it is entertaining. And so it has become uh, politics. And especially with social media, this has become low cost way to entertain ourselves. Yep. Um, I read a, a book recently by a, a professor. I can't remember her name at University of North Carolina. She wrote a book called Twitter and Tear Gas. Um, and it's about the impact of social media on social movements. And her argument um, is basically that uh, when the March on Washington took place in the early 60s, it took them 10 years to organize that. And in the process of doing that, they developed these close personal ties, lots of social capital, and therefore they were able to translate that into political action relatively quickly, whereas with uh, more recent events like uh, the uh, Occupy Wall Street or the Black Lives Matter or the Women's March, um, they were able to organize through social media, but they don't develop the thick social ties. And so they're unable to translate it actually into politics. So we might be having a lot of fireworks, but very little like impact of a lot of this. But it changes the nature of the way we interact with each other in a very, very wrong way, I think. Because we divide ourselves up into silos. We only talk to those people that agree with us rather than disagree with us. And as a result, we can't bridge the social divides that we need. And in order for us to be able to have the kind of democratic society, as Buchanan and Tulloch talk about in uh, the calculus of consent, we have to make sure that these divides are not translated as permanent winning coalitions for one side versus another side. Yeah. Because if that's the case, then you simply reject the process. And so there has to be some way in which we can work all of this out. And I think that that's if, uh, if we economists can contribute to that. Now, just let me say one thing in this in this address that we started talking about. I tried to relate one of my strategies in writing it was to relate to all of my teachers who have been uh, the uh, the president of the Southern. So I hmm. I I became you know someone after a line of teachers starting with Buchanan and Tulloch, but also Robert Tullison, Southern uh, Economic Association, Southern Economic Association, and Tullison's presidential address was all about the point that you were just making about with Zangales, which is that we economists have to always be in the model. We're not outside the model, you know, somehow from on high dictating, yeah. but instead we're part of the model. And so one, that means we have to take into account the incentives that we have and the information flows that we have, but it also means what? That we're part of the equilibrium, yeah. <laughs> meaning that, that our, our efforts aren't as um, completely uh, like Stig Stigler, in some sense, wanted economics only to be a tool of social understanding. And, the, and he also was cynical about economists wanting to do good or whatever. But at the same time, 
uh, there's a kind of efficiency always and a lack of, of hope for change. And Stigler's teacher, who influenced Buchanan Knight, always used to, used to say, if a situation is hopeless, it, you're saying that the situation is ideal. Obviously, we don't live in the ideal world, so therefore it's not hopeless. But how is that change going to come about? We have to be part of the ongoing conversation with our fellow citizens about the scale and scope of government, who's going to do what, and how are they going to do it. And if we can produce and, and, and aid in that process and listen to others' answers to us, we'll probably go forward and be able to tackle those big problems that Hayek, Friedman, and Buchanan left for us to kind of play with and work with and think about. The author of Twitter and Tear Gas is Zainab Tufekci. I don't know if I'm pronouncing it correctly, but uh, the last name is T-U-F-E-K-C-I. First name is Zainab. Um, my guest today has been Peter Betke. Peter, thanks for being part of EconTalk. Russ, thank you so much for having me. This is EconTalk, part of the Library of Economics and Liberty. For more EconTalk, go to econtalk.org, where you can also comment on today's podcast and find links and readings related to today's conversation. The sound engineer for EconTalk is Rich Goyette. I'm your host, Russ Roberts. Thanks for listening. Talk to you on Monday.